There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1088. Let's just jump right into the ID10T community corkboard events at ID10T.com to share your thing. Or thing that someone you know or even don't know made, but you like and think should be shared. So it is time for sharing. Like Emily, who writes, My dad is sharing his lifelong love of music and the history of music through a podcast. He has taken Edison phonographs and used a program to restore the music to its original sound. That is an amazing idea, Emily. That is an incredible idea. Um, She goes on on his podcast. He plays the restored music and gives some historical context. He has more than 30 short podcasts on all platforms under his handle, Vic Trolla. So he's split up the name Vic Trolla into like a first and last name, Vic, V-I-C, Trolla, T-R-O-L-L-A. That is such a great idea. Oh my gosh. I'm going to... Emily, I'm going to check that out. I really want to hear the restored uh, photograph recordings. Um, thank you so much, and thank you to your dad. Give him a high five from me in the ID10T community. Uh, ID10T community corkboard is events at ID10T.com. Um, this episode is an incredible musician named Molly Tuttle that I discovered. I mean, I tell the story on the podcast. I'll give you the short version of it. But, you know, I've been learning guitar for a little while and I really want to learn bluegrass picking. And so I was went online and was looking at bluegrass picking videos a little while back and stumbled across Molly Tuttle. Um, and she is one of the most incredible um, finger pickers I've seen. Like, she's basically... Uh, taken some uh, banjo skills and ported them over to guitar. And I've learned so much just from watching her videos. She's a great teacher, but an incre- also an incredible um, musician. Uh, I immediately bought uh, her album, which is called When You're Ready. That was from 2019, which just has a bunch of really wonderful, beautiful music on it. And, um, and she has just released a new album, Uh, In quarantine, she decided to put together an album of covers called But I'd Rather Be With You, which is out now. It is out now. And it's a fantastic collection of a lot of different styles of music all together uh, on one album. So she's covering um, The National, Rolling Stones, FKA Twigs, Rancid, Grateful Dead, Yeah, 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 Cat Stevens, Harry Styles. Like, it's just a... And it's all kind of bluegrass style, so... Molly Tuttle is a phenomenal musician, um, a, an incredible teacher, and also uh, a really inspirational person. Um, if you go to her website, mollytuttlemusic.com, uh, that's Tuttle, T-U-T-T-L-E, you can uh, read about her story or you can listen to it on the podcast, but such an enjoyable chat, and 
I, you know, I, we had reached out to her uh, representatives because I was just such a huge fan of her work and I'm so glad she agreed to do the podcast. Uh, and I cannot recommend her videos and her music to you enough. Uh, this is the ID10T podcast number 1088 with the brilliant bluegrass musician Molly Tuttle. And stick around uh, because at the end of the podcast, um, she plays a song. So we, well, I'll end the pod. It sounds like the podcast is over. We kind of say goodbye on the Zoom, but then immediately um, it's her uh, a cover. Her cover of the Rolling Stones, "She's a Rainbow," uh, is at the end of the, uh, the podcast as well. Just for ID10T listeners like you. All right, uh, let us begin. Roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. Happy to talk to you. I'm a massive fan of Look. Um, I started taking guitar lessons about a year and a half ago and piano lessons at the same time. Um, and I love bluegrass. I was born in Kentucky. I grew up in Tennessee. And oh, wow. about maybe, I don't know, a little while back, I was up in the middle of the night, not able to sleep. Um, probably stressed about the world. And I just started looking up, oh, I, I really want to learn bluegrass finger picking. I really want to learn. So I just start looking up bluegrass videos. You pop right up and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Aww. I've watched so many of your instructional videos and oh, man, got your album and stuff. And so, Aww. you know, thanks for letting me just get all that out right at the top. But uh, it's really nice to meet you. And um, I'm so glad that you have a new album coming out. <laughs> yeah it's been like it's really given me something to look forward to in the midst of all of this like chaos in the world and it's kind of been like every time I'm getting overly stressed I'm like okay I have I'm excited to share this music with people hopefully it'll help people feel better wherever they are right now so it's been nice to have that honestly if it's making you feel better I feel like that is the residual effect is that it will people yeah. will feel that and it will then pass on to them at the same time yeah I hope so can you just tell me a little bit I kind of want to just find out um uh, I mean I, I you know w when I first discovered your music and who you were I went to your website and I read your about page which was just a beautiful essay that you wrote about about yourself and your life. But can I just before we get to that, can I can I just kind of go back and figure out where did you, you know where did you start? How did you like how and why bluegrass? And just kind of let let's just take the journey. Let's just take the Molly Tuttle journey. <laughs> Sweet, um, yeah. So I I grew up in California. My dad. Um, is from Illinois and his dad played the banjo, my grandpa. Um, so my dad grew up listening to bluegrass and he kind of picked up a bunch of different instruments. He plays a little banjo, he plays guitar and fiddle and mandolin. Um, but then he decided to leave Illinois after college and move out to California. And I don't know, I think he really was into David Grisman and a lot of the more like progressive bluegrass of the time that was happening out in the Bay Area. And it just sounded like 
a fun place to live to him, but he didn't have um, ambitions of going out and being like a bluegrass musician. He was okay. going to pursue some other kind of work. Um, and then he stumbled upon this music store in Palo Alto where I grew up um, called Griffin String Instruments. And uh, the day he went in, he started kind of playing a banjo in there and they were like, Hey, our banjo teacher just quit. The music store has these teaching rooms where they have lessons. And they were like, why don't you start teaching banjo? Like we need a banjo teacher here. Um, So he started teaching banjo and then he started teaching all the bluegrass instruments basically out of that music store. And that just became his career basically. And he still teaches, he's doing like online lessons now, not in person obviously anymore, but um, yeah. So I grew up always hearing my dad play and I'd go hear him. He'd play at like square dances and little show local shows and stuff. So I always heard him play and I really was always so fascinated by music and I wanted to play an instrument and I tried to play fiddle and then I tried to play piano, but it never really stuck. And then finally, when I was eight, I decided I really want a guitar. And so my dad brought me home this little small, like baby Taylor guitar and started showing me chords. And that was the first time I had taken music lessons with other people. But then once my dad started sitting with me and just showing me stuff in a more relaxed way and setting it became more fun for me so then I uh got really into the guitar and that's how I started and then yeah it just kind of progressed from there and started singing and playing banjo as well can uh how because I have small hands and and so some there there are a lot of guitar chords that I cannot play but (laughs) yet I'll see so just hearing you start as a kid you know like I'll see these videos come up on Instagram because Instagram has figured out that I like piano and guitar and I just see like these eight-year-old kids who are just ripping up piano and guitar. And I just feel like, oh, how, how I can't. <laughs> so is that just one of those things that you just, your hand just developed as your body developed as your, as you grew to know how to stretch into certain, into certain patterns? Yeah. I think maybe like a small percentage of it is the actual like size of your hands, but I think also like just learning to stretch your hand in different ways, different techniques. Um, it, I always tell people, because I have students tell me all the time, like, my hand's really small. I need, like, a small guitar. I need to, I can't play these chords. And I'm like, well, I think you can. It doesn't really matter that much the size of your hand or the size of your fingers. Because, yeah, like you said, you do see these little kids playing, like, crazy stuff all the time. <laughs> I know. You're just, and I'm just like, to, like, stretch their hands. And why am I bothering at this point? You know, like, why, you know, it's like, because it, when you're a kid, even if some of those kids never played again, once they became teenagers, mm-hmm. when you learn stuff as a little kid, it just like bakes into your muscle memory. Yeah. And I, I just don't, I don't have that. So I'm, I'm like learning from scratch, you know, in my forties. And I just kind of feel that some days I just feel like, what am I do? Why am I doing this? <laughs> well, I think that's cool. Cause it's so much harder to learn. Like, as an adult, I find myself trying to learn something new and I'm immediately like, oh, I'm never going to be good at this. I feel like you have a different mindset as a kid where you're like, I can be awesome at anything. So it's really cool. I love when people dive into things as an as adults. I think it's really inspiring. Well, it's just, it, it's, you, you appreciate it on a different level as an adult because, because you, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily, if you're into something, you just do it. And as an adult, you recognize how much work things take. So it's a yeah. very conscious, like, all right, I'm going to devote, you know, today I'm going to, I'm going to play the guitar. I'm going to play the piano. But I, I have to say for people who are especially trying to learn different picking styles, watching you play is very educational because you're, you're a good teacher as well. 
but also because you're, I mean, I, I hope this makes sense and doesn't sound weird, but because your fingers are slender, I can see the subtle nuances of your hand and wrist movements. Oh. Whereas a lot of guitar videos that I watch, it's just some, like I watch a lot of dudes with kind of like <laughs> big hands and you can't, I, I, there were so many little subtle movements that I noticed of the, the wrist turning as you were cross picking that I was like, oh my God, I never noticed that before, like watching other people play. Does that, does any of that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. I've never had someone point that out to me, but yeah, I do have like one time someone wrote a little blurb about me about like different guitar players and they were like, she has spidery fingers. And I think like my fingers are, sometimes I get annoyed because they feel very long, but like very thin. But I think that that totally makes sense that maybe you could see more of what I'm doing. You really can. And I can, I can see like the subtle nuances of, of when you're picking, like, how your uh how your left hand like just how just how high your fingers are coming off and i can see mm-hmm. th- th- there's i can really see the articulation mm. which is very helpful because when you kind of don't know what you're doing you know you look at people who know what they're doing and you try to copy it you go okay well this is you know this 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 hand when you're cross picking with your right hand i can see that your wrist is kind of coming out a little bit as you're coming up and i've never really noticed that before because a lot of times you're just like watching you know just like dudes with long hair making youtube videos and it's like their whole hand is covering all the strings and so you just you just miss stuff so right that makes sense that's really interesting yeah so when uh so band you started playing guitar and then when did you make the transition to banjo um let's see i started playing guitar when i was eight and then i think i decided i wanted to play banjo when i was 10 or 11 Um, I remember my dad had a student who was the same age as me and she played banjo and she was awesome at banjo. And I, uh, played with her sometimes and I was like, Ooh, I want to do that too. So then I learned banjo and then I started on three finger style banjo, which is the more bluegrassy style. And Mm -hmm. then I got into like people like Ola Bell Reed and Gillian Welch who play the claw hammer style, which is like an older style of banjo playing. So then I started playing that too. And then I kind of transferred the Clawhammer banjo style onto the guitar and <laughs> started playing Clawhammer guitar. So it was all, I think the banjo playing has influenced my guitar playing in a lot of ways. What is it specifically about, and listen, I, I listen to a lot of bluegrass music. I have Bluegrass Junction on my favorite channels on Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but just in sort of the, the kind of history of bluegrass, what is it specifically that makes that three finger bluegrass uh, did you say three strings, three finger? Uh, three finger. What What is it specifically that makes that bluegrass? Is it just like, well, this is just what they did, or is there a is there a philosophy behind it? Yeah. So the the style comes from Earl Scruggs, who was the first one to um, play that specific style. There were other people who kind of hinted at the style, but then he kind of took the three finger banjo style and really developed his own repertoire of licks and cool. of rolls. So basically, uh, he is wearing three finger picks. Um, two like metal picks on the index and middle finger and a thumb pick and just playing these three finger rolls that kind of roll over the song. So like if you're playing a song in like four, four time, he's playing like a pattern of three over it. And it's usually like all eighth notes. So it's different. I play a little bit of finger pick guitar as well, but the banjo is more like this syncopated, like constant rolling sounds like da, 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 da. Um, it's hard to describe. And then there's like a whole repertoire of licks and like things he does around this style, but it's all based on this, 
these three finger patterns that he developed. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I, I think of it as the difference between a piano and a harpsichord where like a guitar is a strumming instrument and a piano is a very fluid, you know, because the, the piano has hammers that strike the strings, but a harpsichord is a plucking instrument. Yeah. And a banjo seems to be kind of a plucking instrument too, which mm-hmm, is what gives definitely. it, gives, gives it that sound. Yeah. But the idea of sort of, uh, of doing that, uh, like, you know, interdisciplinary, like oh, I'm going to take these principles and, and bring them over to guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that right away you realized, oh, this sounds a little bit different than other stuff that I've, I've heard out there? Or is it just, I don't know, it's fun for me, so I'm just going to do it? <laughs> I think maybe it was a little of both. I'm always looking for different, uh, different techniques and sounds with guitar that I haven't heard people do before. I was never interested in like mimicking another guitar player completely, although I did have a few guitar players who I tried to like learn all of their licks, but then I'd always try to kind of make my own thing with it. Um, but yeah, the banjo rolls, like I take those kind of roll patterns a lot and play them on guitar with cross picking and, um, yeah, it creates a cool sound on the guitar, like a little more syncopated. I think there's a lot of stuff that you can take from other instruments and apply to guitar. It's kind of like a blank slate in a way, I feel. Yeah, because guitar also, um, it's not, you can strum it, you can pick it, it's percussive. Mm -hmm. And there are different spots on the guitar where you can create percussion. And like you Mm -hmm. said, that sort of syncopated feel, like it's a much more flexible instrument than just, you know, G, C, D, you know, there's so many, there's so many things that you can do with it. Do you feel like, oh, there's so much, do you you ever have these thoughts like, oh my gosh, there's so much more for me to explore with guitar. Do you feel like you're still on the journey? Yeah, definitely. I think like, I don't have as much of a set like practice regimen where I'm always like exploring new stuff, but there's so much, especially like guitar just feels like such a versatile instrument. Like there's all the acoustic guitar stuff, but then you can get into electric guitar playing. I've been trying to do more electric playing during quarantine since I have more time, but that's like, it's a whole, a whole other technique and there's like, you can get into pedals and stuff. And so the guitar just feels like such an endless world of possibility to me, which I think is why I've always gravitated towards it. Uh, can we talk a little bit about blue, a bluegrass as a genre? Because I'm, you know, uh, like I said, I've been listening to bluegrass music for a long time. And maybe 20 years ago, I had some friends who started a band in LA, a bluegrass band called the Cousin Lovers, and they were phenomenal, just mm-hmm. phenomenal musicians. And they all came together. And they, it always struck me that you know, I thought, oh my God, these guys are going to be so huge because they're all so talented. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys from the band said, well, our challenge is that we're not, um, you know, like some of the bluegrass purists give mm-hmm. us a little bit of shit because our themes are a little more contemporary. And it's not mm-hmm. like some of the music we play wouldn't, you wouldn't call traditional bluegrass, even though it has the constituent elements of bluegrass. Yeah. But he said, but also, but it's not like country enough to be country you know, and there were, again, there were very modern themes with like a bluegrass, I'm not even trying to categorize it, but it was, you know, they were always one of my favorite bands of all time. And they said, yeah, there's like real snobbery within like some of the subsets of bluegrass about what's real bluegrass or like what you were talking about, like three finger bluegrass versus this versus that versus, you know, Appalachian. So can you talk a little bit about when we say bluegrass, I, I think maybe do people mean what they think they're saying? Or is it, is that just a too blanket of a term? Yeah, I'm so 
I get so annoyed at the bluegrass snobbery because it's just, <laughs> it really annoys me. So many of my bluegrass heroes are like bluegrass snobs wouldn't like, like people, Hazel Dickens, like one of the first pioneering women of bluegrass people said she was like too folky and her songs were too political. And it's like, and then now people are just pushing the boundaries um, with the genre, but there's so much pushback from like the bluegrass purists. And I'm kind of like, ready to just be like, let's retire the name bluegrass and let people just play whatever <laughs> they want. Like I like the word to describe like the early bluegrass players like Bill Monroe, Platten Scruggs, the Stanley brothers. But I feel like it's become this thing of just like trying to preserve this purity in the music when everyone's really just doing different things. I don't think there are many bands that sound like the early bluegrass players right now. There's just a handful of traditional bluegrass bands. Um, so yeah, I think it's a helpful way to describe music and be like, okay, this has like a bluegrass banjo in it, or this has like bluegrass instrumentation. If it's like banjo, mandolin, fiddle, guitar, and bass, um, and dobro. But I just get so annoyed at people trying to exclude people from bluegrass festivals or like the genre and the community as a whole, because it just feels like, I don't know. It, it really gets on my nerves. Well, is it, I mean, that's where innovation is supposed to come from, right? Like yeah. you, you, you sort of build on the things that you've learned from mm -hmm. the past and then you innovate, mm -hmm. you know, by infusing your own point of view, like your, your album when you're ready is great. I mean, it has, Thanks. it has bluegrass elements to it, but there, there are contemporary themes and mm -hmm. it's, and it, it's not, I mean, and, and to, you know, for someone to try to categorize it, I don't know, it just feels like, well, you could just enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you could just listen to it and enjoy that, you know, you've, 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 you've found a way to express um, these, these different things. I mean, that's, isn't that what an artist is supposed to do? Like you're supposed to infuse yeah. who you are into your art and not necessarily just conform to an old ideal. Yeah, and like that's what Bill Monroe was doing when he started the Bluegrass Boys. And he would always tell other people, like, because he had mandolin players who would want to play exactly like him. And he'd be like, okay, learn my style, but then find your own style. So he was, I think he in some ways was wanting people to take the style and innovate. But then other times I think he would uh, get annoyed at people for um, taking Bluegrass too far if they like were hippies or whatever um but <laughs> but yeah I just feel like he like the music was started by someone who was innovating and like taking stuff from different genres and different influences that he had and so it's it doesn't make sense to me to now be like well you have to play this certain way or like you're not gonna get to come to our festival or whatever <laughs> well I think um uh I'm friends with this artist named Sarah Watkins and Sarah is phenomenal at taking bluegrass i mean she's also just a straight incredible fiddle player mm -hmm. but also is able to take these things and sort of infuse them into like a different sound of music and and to me it just feels like well you know in the old days of media when there were when ever when there were when there was just radio and there were a limited you know there were like five stations a rock station and this station a you know a mm -hmm. classical station maybe it mattered more then but now it just feels like you have the internet and there's satellite radio like yeah do, do you feel it's how, how do you feel as an artist like do you feel it's important to kind of have an overall 
vibe so that people know how to categorize and where to play your music or you just feel like, no, it doesn't matter. I make what I make and it just kind of finds whatever channels it finds. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm more of like, I make what I make, but that's just for my own like personal satisfaction and like just kind of spiritually. I'm like, I want to make the music that I want to make and not have to worry about like these genres. But I think in some ways it is helpful to like fit into a category that people can understand or at least have some way to describe your music, which I'm really bad at. Um, <laughs> that's probably helpful for like getting on serious radio or whatever. But yeah, I just kind of like let other people deal with that. <laughs> like my managers, you can figure this out. I'll just give you this album. <laughs> but I think that's what's great though, because then it's, I think people can fall into that trap of, you know, obviously so many people now think of like, what's my brand? And it's like, well, (laughs) maybe you, maybe that's good to sort of balance that out for some of the bigger directional questions. But then Mm -hmm. if you're worried about that, would you say it's fair to say that you're too, that you're doing it too much for other people and not enough for yourself? Yeah. I think like you can't have an expectation from your fans or from other people or the press or whatever, because that in a way is trying to control their reaction. And um, you can't really control or worry about too much what other people are going to think about you because that you're never going to be happy if you do. And you really can't control it. You can do exactly what you think people will want and they still might not like it. So it doesn't really, that's something I've kind of had to realize is that like, if I'm branching out from what people expect from me, like not playing as bluegrassy stuff anymore, um, maybe some people won't be as happy, but maybe I'll reach more people. It's not really something I can control. So I just try not to think about it too much or like get online and read the comments. (laughs) That's like, like I've definitely been guilty of at like two or 3 a.m. Yeah, it's not, there's, there's no good reason to ever read comments. There's no, no, there's no good reason. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you a Fleetwood Mac fan at all? Oh, I love Fleetwood Mac, yeah. There's a really great article, and I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up, but it's all about how after Rumors came out, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, the biggest album at the time. They yeah. sold like Best 16 album. million albums or whatever. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were all doing like mountains of drugs too, but mm-hmm. Lindsey Buckingham... <laughs> as a reaction to how popular rumors was mm-hmm. made almost kind of the opposite out. Like it, he, they made a very reactive album. Tusk was the follow up. Mm-hmm. 
and it was totally different and it was kind of weird because he likes yeah. he's this music nerd and he likes all these weird sounds and I I adore it but at the time it was considered like a bomb because right. they actively sought to not recreate what they had done with their commercials they didn't want to make rumors too yeah that makes sense even even so, it still sold like four million albums, which is like mind blowing <laughs> by by today's standards. Yeah. But do you think even that is like well? Then, but then you're still trying to. But then you're still kind of worrying about like what people are thinking. Like, what's the? Is there a balance? Do you think when you go to make a a, a follow up album like your net your second and third albums, do you mm-hmm. actively go well? I want this to be different, or I want some elements to be the same, or is it just this is what I'm feeling, and so this is what I'm going to make. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I think sometimes I have that feeling like, oh, I want to do something way different. I need to like, find a new person to work with or like do this. And I don't know, it's like, it definitely is a balance that I don't really know if I have an answer to. Um, But I think just like, trying to clear your head and just give yourself some time to think about like, do I really want to do this? Or is it like, these outside forces pressuring me to? Um, That's why I try to like, just center myself a little bit and think like, what do I actually want to say? It all comes back to like, whatever, what your like overarching message is, I guess that you want to convey. Um, Yeah. But yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'll have to think about that. And I need to listen to that album Tusk. I haven't really dove into that one. Well, it would probably, what I would recommend is that you listen to rumors first. Yeah. I listen to rumors a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, it's, it's crazy like what a hit machine that band was. And literally everyone in the band is like, oh, everyone's like brilliantly talented in their own way. And somehow, somehow they have this toxic relationship together, but it's so weird and toxic that it like balances out some, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's an interesting video for you to make of you listening to Tusk and then just like your reactions to how you think it's different. You know, that might be kind of fun. I feel like stuff like that too, even if you're, you are just doing a reactive thing that can also be like a force that creates something really interesting and different. And like, I always wonder about that with bands that you hear about where like having extreme, like interpersonal (laughs) conflicts. Sometimes I feel like the best albums come out of that. It's so weird. Yeah. Because it, it, you know, it it really is about, there is that sort of, when songs aren't um, on the nose and saying like, I feel this, this is how I feel. (laughs) But someone is really adept at expressing an idea and Mm -hmm. an audience can tell if it's coming from an authentic place. Obviously there's ways to fake it, I'm sure. But there is some sort of an authentic element that even if people don't quite understand how and why they're connecting with it, it hits them like on a molecular level, on a Mm -hmm. deep emotional level, subconscious level that it can only come from like a, a real place. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And is that when you're writing, do you, do you lead with, um, do you lead with like a riff first, like a musical riff first, or do you, do you have sort of an emotional, like does the music sort of pull the emotion out or does the emotion kind of draw the direction of the music? Mm, it really depends. Like I have a lot of lyric ideas that I'll, that'll just come into my head throughout the day. And those might be like things I'm thinking about or a book I read or um, I've been trying to get more like personal with the things I'm writing about, like digging into stuff with like my family or like experiences that I've had in my own life. But, um, but yeah, other times I'm just like strumming a guitar and like 
just kind of singing a melody over it and that'll bring out different emotions or things that pop into my head based on the music that I'm thinking of. And are you two, you, I saw you have some live tour dates on your mm-hmm. website. Are you still doing oh, yeah. those? No, <laughs> oh. I don't think so. There might be some for next year that we're still waiting to hear. Um, it's been weird. Like maybe some of them haven't officially canceled yet, but I don't think there's going to be any for this year, at least we'll right. see about next year. I have like a one very small, extremely socially distanced show this weekend. And that'll be interesting. I wasn't totally sure if it was going to happen. And I guess it's happening. I think they're being really safe about it. So that'll be kind of a a thrill to play for an actual audience, even though it's very small. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't think any shows are really happening. We'll see. You're in Nashville, right? Yeah. How, How is it there? It's definitely a mix. Like, I don't know what's going on downtown it seems like it's a free-for-all like I see pictures of bars that are packed with people not wearing masks like the bands on stage I'm just like I feel so bad for the band I live in East Nashville and I see like tourists all over the place like just coming in from other towns to check it out and like walking around without masks and I'm like come on like the least you can do when you're coming to someone else's city is wear a mask I think they now have a mask mandate but I still see people without them all the time outside well, I mean, look, you know, if people are at bars, they're just not going to care as much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and Nashville, like, the, there's that, there's that, like, Vegasy strip of Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, what is it, Broadway? Is it called, is yeah, it Broadway? Broadway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was doing stand-up there last, was it, maybe it was late last year, mm-hmm. and noticed, like, oh, there are, like, these weird tandem pedal bikes like these pedal bars where people are just somehow combining alcohol and uh aerobic exercise yeah and it just feels like a bad idea at the get-go are those still happening yeah they call those pedal taverns and I had to like drive around downtown to get somewhere the other day and I got stuck behind one I'm like how are these still going and everyone was like drunk you don't even actually have to pedal. Like they just drive you and you can like pretend to pedal and you have oh, to bring your own beer. Apparently I've never done one, but I've just heard, I know the inner workings of them. Cause it's so bizarre. Like what a weird thing to want to do. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's like, I want to, I want to ride a bike, but I also want to get drunk with other people <laughs> at a table. Like yeah. It, and, but they're everywhere. They're like multiple, There's, what are they called? Pedal bars? Pedal. Pedal taverns. Pedal taverns. <laughs> How is that legal? I can't even I know. That's... They go oh, on the roads that? and they're so slow and you like have to pass them. And it's a little scary because everyone's like falling off. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> I miss Nashville. Nashville's such, I'm from, I grew up in Memphis. Oh, nice. And, and Nashville is just such a great, I don't know, the vibe is just, it's obviously everyone has caught on to this because, you know, it's boomed in the last five years. But for you, is it, is it, was it really sort of just being in the community of musicians down there and just kind of being able to hang out in that vibe? What was it specifically about Nashville that drew you? Yeah, um, I had like, just finished school in Boston. And so I was ready to move somewhere else because all my friends were, it just felt like such a transient town everyone was like going to college and then leaving um so I was like I want to move to a music 
town and just like start touring. I want to live somewhere like more central that I can start touring out of and somewhere with like a lot of other musicians and Nashville just made the most sense because of the music that I play. And I already knew a lot of people there and just so much cool stuff was happening that it really uh, drew me there. And then I moved and it was kind of a culture shock, but I found such an amazing community there. It's really cool. And stuff is always coming up like, well, not really so much anymore, but there's just always cool events going on. You get like roped into doing really awesome things that you would never expect to be doing. And is it, is Nashville the place like you think like, I'm going to stay here for a long time or do you envision, you know, I'll be here for a while while I'm kind of developing different musical things. And then maybe someday, who knows, I'll move back to the Bay area or out to a farm in Montana. Like, have you, have you (laughs) thought about any of something like that? Yeah, I'm like always thinking about <laughs> moving away. It definitely <laughs> makes sense right now, but I like I really miss the West Coast. So I'm always I feel like I have a different city that I want to move to on the West Coast all the time. For a while I was like I want to move to Portland, and then I was like I'd probably want more like music stuff going on, so then I was thinking LA eventually, but I'll pro- I'm sure I'll stay in Nashville for a while longer and then eventually move somewhere else. It hasn't ever felt like this is my forever place. I'd probably always want to spend some time here if I could, but yeah. As a live performer in this time where we're sort of hobbled, mm-hmm. um, and, and I guess the the album that you made, the cover, the album covers, uh, mm-hmm. it that was probably a good reaction to like, oh, I got to do something, I got to do something, I got to do something. Mm-hmm. But when you're sort of looking down the pipeline at like, oh yeah, there's probably not going to be any more shows this year. Who mm-hmm. really knows? What are you, what, what do you do like to satisfy that kind of live performance thing? Are you going to do, are you going to do zoom shows? Are you going to just like hibernate? Like what, what do you feel like is going to help you kind of scratch that live performance itch? Um, I've been doing like online shows, live streams, I'm doing one for the album release that I'm excited about because it's at um, a photography studio that I've done some, I've taken some photos at before and we're going to like, it has a real stage and we're going to use a mic, which is like so exciting for me to get to sing into a mic again. Like (laughs) now I feel like any level of performing, I don't need an audience. If I can like hear myself back in a monitor, I'm like, this is amazing. Um, So yeah, that'll be fun. I think just probably still stuff like that, live streams. People have been getting more creative with them. I did one at the Grand Ole Opry um, a week or two ago that was fun. There was no audience and it was like in the huge Opry. Oh, wow. And everyone was like wearing masks and socially distanced. And uh, that was really fun though. It was fun to just get to play a show. So I feel like, I don't know, right now I'll take anything. (laughs) Yeah. I do like the live streams because... Well, not ones like that, but the ones I do at home, just on from my computer or whatever, you can see the comments and that's different for me. I don't normally obviously get like that much reaction from the mm-hmm. audience in comments and get to see questions or requests. So that's been pretty fun. I'll probably just keep doing stuff like that. For the I, time I, I'm always fascinated by musicians versus because I, I feel like I can't, I, I, you know, I have friends who are doing stand-up shows via Zoom Mm-hmm. But I just don't feel it because I sort of think, no, you need, it's about forming a relationship with the audience. You, mm-hmm. you kind of, you work with them to form this little temporary community for, you know, 90 minutes yeah. or whatever. 
and I, and, and I often think like, oh, you know, if I were a musician, I could just play my songs. I wouldn't necessarily need people to be there. Am I flawed in that thinking? Do you feel like you could, you know, as long as you know people are listening, but you don't necessarily have to hear them reacting, is that okay with you? Or do you, do you really crave that, like, that live person interaction? Yeah, I find it weird. The weirdest part is just, like, I can play a song and I feel fine playing the song. Um, but then after the song ends and I'm just, like, there's no – it's, like, dead silence – I'm like, what do I say? You're kind of like pretending people are there and like talking at them, but you can't see them. The like in between songs part is the weirdest. And it's less weird when I'm home and can see the comments. But when I'm playing a live stream where I can't see comments and can't see any people, that's the weirdest for me. Mainly just like the talking. <laughs> like, I, this is so weird. I'm like pretending to talk to people. <laughs> I, no, you're right. Just that last note rings out and then you, and then you're just, okay. It's so awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been great. Yeah. That's uh, a great audience. I have no idea if anyone is listening. Who's ready to rock? I don't <laughs> know. What city is everyone in? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Such a strange, well, that's why I think, you know, I think there will be this combination when we're able to do live shows again of, mm-hmm. holy shit, these shows are going to be like, electric because people are just so hungry to be out in a group together again but I wonder how much residual like PTSD agoraphobia is going to be there too if some people are if they're going to be like a little reserved it's I think I think there'll be a little bit of a transition period but Mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll fall back into it somehow I don't know we need to and I yeah I can't imagine like with stand-up comedy too because you really rely on that for timing must be so much weirder. Than... Well, I haven't done any of the Zoom shows yet because I yeah. feel like, well, you're really just doing a monologue. Right. Or a friend of mine said, oh, it's it feels like when we used to do open mics and there might be four people in the room and you just <laughs> oh, man. you just get off stage sweaty and you're like, well, I got through it, you know? It's like, yeah. it's, it's like that feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see what happens when we can start playing again. But I think that's why it's important to do what you're doing, which is still find a way to express, still find a way to connect with people mm-hmm. however however you can, because th- that those are sort of like the, the 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 oxygen bubbles that will keep you going so you don't just mm-hmm. fold inward, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would love to talk about is it all right if we talk about your about page on your website? Sure, yeah. It it was just such a, it, not at all what I expected to read when I was like, oh, Molly Tuttle, I want to see, you know, where is she from? And I start reading this page and I go, this is incredible. Oh, was it the alopecia one? It was the alopecia oh, post oh. about, about you know, when you were three being diagnosed with alopecia areata and then mm-hmm. discovering that it was the universalis where it's basically yeah. like, um, and you started losing hair at a very young age and just mm-hmm. your journey with it. And where it lands at the end, and I really encourage people to read it, it's mollytuttlemusic.com. Just go to the about page Mm -hmm. because it's a very empowering and important message about embracing who you are and being comfortable with who you are. And Mm -hmm. so do do you mind just sort of talking through it a little bit for people? Because it's it's a really incredible story. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I wrote that a while ago. Um, That was kind of the first thing I ever wrote about alopecia was when I was, I think I just started being more public about it with fans and stuff. But yeah, I lost my hair 
when I was three, pretty much lost all my hair to alopecia, which is an autoimmune condition where basically your body, your immune system gets confused and attacks part of your own body. And so it can happen um, in so many different ways. There's like type one diabetes where your immune system starts attacking your pancreas. There's um, rheumatoid arthritis where it attacks your joints. But for me, it's attacking the hair follicles. So um, yeah, all my hair fell out and it's pretty rare that it progresses that far where it really affects all your hair. Um, so yeah, that happened when I was three and so I went all through school wearing hats. And then when I was in high school, I wore wigs, but I always struggled with talking about it with people as a kid. It was like, it felt like a really personal thing, but it was also something everyone could see. So people were always asking me about it, but I was like, not really comfortable sharing it at such an early age. I didn't really know how to explain it to like, even like adults would ask me about it. And I'm just like this five-year-old, like, I don't know. <laughs> right. It's just this thing. Like it was definitely like a weird experience growing up, but I always had like really supportive family and friends. Um, a lot of kids with alopecia are bullied. I was never like hardcore bullied, but people, other kids would like pull off my hat or like kind of whisper about me or stuff like that. So that's something that I dealt with as a kid. Um, but it really just kind of affected me as a person, I think it might be one of the reasons why I was so drawn to music was because it was a way to express myself before I could really verbalize what I was feeling about alopecia and feeling different from my peers. And, um, and it also gave me a sense of like self-esteem and like I had this talent that made me feel good about myself when I didn't really feel good about this other thing. Um, especially when I was a teenager, I, I really, hated having alopecia. I was like, I just want it to go away. So that's when I started wearing wigs. I was like, I just want to ignore it. I don't want to talk about it. Just want to like blend in. But even when I was wearing wigs, people could still kind of tell I was wearing wigs. So I was like in denial a little bit about um, just being able to ignore it completely. And so then when once I graduated high school and went to college, I was like, this sucks. Like, I don't want to be keeping this a secret. I want to start telling people about it and talk, learning how to talk about it. So then I just started opening up to friends. And then from there, just started bringing it up in conversation with people. Um, tried going out without my wig more often. And then finally, I um, contacted the National Alopecia Areata Foundation. Um, and they had really helped me as a little kid. I went to this conference that they have every year. And like, you get to be around other people who have alopecia, which is really not very common. I'll see other people with alopecia every now and then, but usually it's just like passing and you might like give them the alopecia nod and be like, I know (laughs) (laughs) you have alopecia too, but you don't like usually get to hang out with like a whole group of people with alopecia. So that was uh, something I loved as a kid. So then I contacted them again and I'm like, Hey, like I have alopecia. I used to go to the conference. If you ever want me to come and play music, I would love to. And they were super cool. And were like, you should come out this year and play at our conference. Um, so I did. And that's when I made the post publicly about it. Um, and I remember I just posted, I had my friend Caitlin come over and take some pictures of me without my wig. And then I posted one of them and I was, I just explained what alopecia was. I was like, I just want to be public about this. I think I was like early twenties, 22 or 23. Um, And yeah, I did that and then turned my phone off and flew to the conference and I was like afraid to look at it. But then everyone was so supportive. It was such a relief. And then I got to have this awesome weekend uh, with other people with alopecia. So that was really the beginning of feeling like I accepted myself. And I saw like people who didn't have any hair and looked like me who were so confident and like loved not having hair. 
and some of them wore wigs for fun and some of them didn't wear wigs. Some of them wore wigs all the time. And it was just cool to see how everyone had their own path with it and everyone had come to accept it or even not accept it, but kind of like didn't let it get in the way of them being happy, I guess. Um, So that was really healing for me. And then I went back, I've been back the last few years. I was supposed to be this year. I was supposed to give the like closing speech, which was going to be really exciting for me, but then the conference didn't happen because of COVID. Um, But that's been super rewarding is just using that as a platform to hopefully help other people with whatever they're dealing with and just feel more comfortable in their skin. Um, And I feel like just by doing that and having that relationship with my fans, it's been really super helpful for me. And now I just, I look at it as like this awesome thing that happened to me that lets me share that with other people. That's really incredible because it, you know, it, 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 and it's, and it, and it, weirdly is parallel to your journey as an artist too, mm-hmm. where you're, when you're young, it, it's, we were talking about bluegrass and conformity or, you know, with something like alopecia or something else that someone's experiencing when they're young that mm-hmm. they feel makes them different. And, you know, when you're young, you just want to conform because you just want to fit in and you just yeah. want to feel. And then, but at a certain point realizing like, no, I'm this thing that I've been thinking, you know, is different and kind of mm-hmm. strange is actually the empowering thing that makes me yeah. unique and that makes me Definitely. special. And it's, it's like, I guess, would you say it's similar to sort of like finding your voice and being strong about your own artistic voice as well? Do you, do you see parallels between those? Definitely. I think it's always been really tied to that. Like, and now I feel more confident than I ever had with my alopecia, but I also feel more confident than ever with like saying what I want to say with my music. And I feel like I'm finally at the point where with my next album, I want to dig into this, these topics that I've experienced through alopecia or just through feeling different. Um, So yeah, I think those two have always paralleled themselves, just overall feeling confident in myself um, with music and with alopecia. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then... There are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. For people who are maybe in the sort of nascent stages of struggling with mm-hmm. something similar you know, what would you say to help like flip the switch to help them to discover and realize and embrace, you know, 
that uh, in sort of that, that kind of awakening that you had with it, what, what would you say, like, what advice would you give to other people? Um, I'd just say like, wherever you are, that's totally okay. Everyone has to go through every stage. Don't beat yourself up because you aren't accepting yourself. Like I wear a wig a lot of the time, but I'm not going to beat myself up for that. Cause I know that I still, that's just part of who I am right now. And maybe it'll change, but um, it's kind of like, you don't have to love yourself or even like yourself immediately, but you can accept where you are and, and not feel bad about it. And that can be a real act of confidence too, is saying, Hey, I don't feel comfortable telling this person about my alopecia. I don't feel comfortable going to the gym without my wig. I don't feel comfortable doing this yet, but I want to work on it. And I think the tools to help yourself feel better would be like finding a community. That was really big for me, maybe seeking a therapist or Mm -hmm. talking to a friend about it, or even taking the initial leap of faith and posting a picture without your wig or going out without your wig, but it's all cumulative and it's all baby steps. So you definitely have to get out of your comfort zone and don't get too complacent with it if you want to reach another level of acceptance, but also you don't have to like beat yourself up because you're not where you want to be. That's a, that's a really great way to put it too. that sort of incremental change, Mm -hmm. you know, because I I think we want everything to sort of be simple and cinematic where it's just like, Oh, I, you know, I have one quick two minute montage and now everything's different, you know, or I feel this way, you know, it's like, well, just, try to do little bits each day. Yeah. And sometimes you will do something and find that it's like, whoa, my whole perspective has changed. Like for me, that was going to the conference, but then other times you might just like wear your wig and walk around your neighborhood and feel weird about it and self-conscious. And then, but then the next day feel more comfortable doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also being really understanding that, time moves so fast. I know, I know that the last five months have felt like one long weird day. I just keep saying like every day's Wednesday, (laughs) but we're already almost in the fall. Like I was looking at my calendar. I'm like labor day. What the, you know, I mean, it's crazy. So you think about, you know, if you started something at the beginning of the quarantine and just took little steps each day, whether it was a philosophical uh, shift that you were looking for or recording an album or studying music or studying a language or anything, Mm -hmm. the cumulative effect of regular kind of checking in and activity over the course of five, six, seven months, eight months, nine months. Yeah. It can be pretty astonishing. It can be pretty surprising, like what you can achieve in a seemingly short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I've been like, well, with alopecia specifically, the quarantine has been kind of interesting for that because I've had the time to try out like ordering different wigs and I've like worn my wig a lot less because I'm less in the public eye. I just kind of been like going to the store without it going out. And I feel like I've made so much progress that I wasn't even like aware of just with feeling comfortable. So now when I feel like, I feel like when I go back on, out on the road, I'll finally be at a point where maybe I'll not wear a wig for a show, wear a wig for the next show, wear like a crazy wig for a show. And that's been something I've always wanted to do. So Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad you're already thinking about like what's next because it's so, it can be so 
easy with this thing that, that we're in to just, you throw up your hands and go, oh my God, I don't know. What does I anything know. mean? We're never going to. Between that and feeling hopeful, I'm like, maybe I'll never play anything again. <laughs> but you will. You definitely will. Like it's, 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 it's eventually we'll get through this and eventually it'll normalize. And, and so it's just sort of that feeling of how do we, how do we get through it? How do we deal with the day to day? And it sounds like you know, your process of recording um, the new album, uh, which is But I'd Rather Be With You, which is available August 28th. Um, was that something that you kind of banged out in a week or did you, was it slowly over time? Like from inception to final product, what was that process? Um, so that started uh, a, like a week or two after we like canceled all the shows and I went home. I had been talking to Tony Berg who produced the album about making an album later in the year. And we kind of put that on hold. We were like, let's reassess. Um, And I had actually been staying with him right before I flew home to Nashville and had all my shows canceled. I was supposed to go on tour, but instead I just flew back home. Um, And so we kind of like left it for a couple of weeks. And then he called my managers and was like, Hey, I just heard all these demos that Molly made at her house, why don't we just make a remote album (laughs) during quarantine? So we were like picking songs and we had the idea to do a bunch of covers. I was just having a hard time, like finding the inspiration to write my own songs. And also I was like, this is kind of like a cool experiment to take these songs that I've loved throughout my life and revisit them and show people a different side of who I am. And, um, so we, the longest part of the process was picking the songs that took a f- few weeks. And I had a bunch in mind that I'd kind of played throughout the years. Uh, most of them I hadn't played live very much or hadn't played live at all. And then a few of them were like brand new songs that I discovered and um, were discovered in the last year. And so, yeah, we just went back and forth with songs. That was really, we really like went through that process pretty intensely. Like we didn't, we wanted to make sure each song was really special and that they all fit together and that I could bring something new to the songs. Um, and then I recorded them over the span of two or three weeks at my house. Um, I was really ambitious at first. I'm like, I'm going to do two songs a day and, get <laughs> one week. and then I would do like one song and just feel so <laughs> tired. <laughs> <laughs> and like I ended up playing Stardew Valley. This like oh yeah yeah of course I know Stardew. I've been playing Animal Crossing, but my wife played Stardew. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I kind of wanted to get into Animal Crossing. I'm wearing an Animal Crossing shirt. Oh, nice. Is, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, this is this is the musician. There's a there's a little dog named KK Slider, and he plays songs in the. He shows up and it. plays songs in the game, and so uh, <laughs> cool. yeah, I thought it was an appropriate. Appropriate shirt for a musical podcast. Yeah, I'm afraid to get Animal Crossing. I played Stardew while I was recording the album because it was such a nice balance. I was like, I'd feel so intense. And it was really hard to learn how to use Pro Tools and like set up everything myself. I'm used to having like engineers helping me. Um, so then I'd feel just like so drained and play Animal or not play Stardew Valley. Um, so that took me, I ended up doing like one song a day. It took me like two weeks and then we went back and like redid parts on a few of them. So altogether, my part took like three weeks, I think. I've only heard the the Rancid cover, Olympia Washington, um, which is phenomenal. And what I love about the songs that you chose is that it's obvious that these were all, because they're not the most obvious songs by the different bands. They're really specific songs. And so what it says to me is like, oh, 
these songs were all really special to Molly as opposed to, I'm just going to do a bunch of covers that you all know. There's like, you have a, a, a cover by The National, The Rolling Stones, FKA Twigs, Rancid, Grateful Dead, Yeah, Yeah, Yes, Harry Styles, and Cat Stevens. Like, it's, it's such a great, uh, oh, did I leave any? Arthur Russell and, and, and Karen Dalton. And what's so wonderful about it is, and maybe this just is because I'm, a, I'm an older person, but again, that idea, like we were talking about earlier, is like music used to really be in specific lanes, genres. And then in the last 15 years, we've really sort of realized like, no, people listen to all sorts of stuff. And we're sort of like, we're, we're like a playlist culture now. Yeah. And so this track listing to me is almost like a musical diary because mm-hmm. it feels like, oh, each one of these songs meant something to her. And, you know, I, my, people are tired of hearing me say this, but my wife has this idea of like with interior decoration where it's like, you don't have to put everything of the same theme in one room. Mm-hmm. You put the things that are meaningful to you and then you are the glue that like, holds them all together. Would you say that that is an accurate appraisal of this album? Yeah, definitely. I think the real, the only real theme is just that these songs are all meaningful to me and have brought, like each one I have a specific memory and like I can remember hearing it and going through something or having an awesome experience or covering it in a certain way. Um, Like the Rancid one I played when I was in like seventh grade with my rock band. And then I remembered it this last year because I played in Olympia, Washington. Um, And I went back to it. I'm like, oh, this is like a folk song. It's like three chords and it's so fun. And it became one of my favorite songs to play. Um, And so, yeah, it's just like, I guess I was at certain points in choosing the songs, I like was trying to force a theme on it. Like I want to do all this type of song or I want to do like songs that everyone will know and be able to sing along to, but that just never could materialize and then ended up just going with all these songs that are really special to me because those are the ones I love playing the most. Covers can be tricky because sometimes a band will cover a song and it just feels like, oh, you're just doing karaoke. You yeah. know what I mean? Or you're just yeah. doing the song. It just sounds like this. What I mean by karaoke is like, it just sounds like the original version. Exactly. But you you especially with the rancid song and one of the things that i love about like a bluegrass influence is bluegrass really seems to draw out the the sort of the different tones of a song and you draw out the musicality and i was a a big rancid fan but you draw out this musicality it's like oh this is actually a really pretty song in a way that i hadn't realized before just because yeah. of the way that they presented it just felt more hardcore and you've presented in this way that's like this is a really lovely song yeah it's such a beautiful song and yeah I'm like it's how I kind of just instantly started playing it but then listening back to their version which I love so much I'm like wow that is like a lot different I guess just because of my style and so that was like what we tried to do with the other songs on the record is there were certain songs I wanted to cover like there's a Gillian Welch song that I love Wrecking Ball that was really special to me because it has so many references to where I grew up. But when I went to play that one, I was just like, well, I kind of sound just like I'm trying to sound like her because our st- she's influenced me so much in my own music and like our styles are kind of similar. So I tried to stay away from stuff like that and go for bands that have influenced me, but not in as obvious ways. Right. And are you, how, how do you, like, it feels like, cause this all came together relatively quickly, you know, particularly yeah. for an album. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Do you have any feelings? Is it, you know, it's just, 
in the, this podcast will go up on the 25th and then three days later the album comes it'll just be out like have you have you really sat with that yet how do you feel I'm really excited. I'm more excited than I thought I would be by far. When I was recording it, I had so many ups and downs like I always do, but especially with this, since it's a little more unconventional and it's not what I thought I would be doing. It's like, like, oh, okay, I guess I'm recording all these covers in my bedroom, like sending them off and just hoping that they end up sounding good once the full band is on them. I was just like, I guess this will be cool. But then once I got it all back, I think Tony Berg just did such an awesome job with the production and the players he asked are amazing. Um, so I just started feeling really excited about it. And I think cause the songs are all like some of my favorite songs. I'm just excited for people to hear them and, um, and hopefully appreciate them the way I do. That's really great. And I, I Tony Berg's worked with Andrew Berg, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, who I've seen live before and mm-hmm. he's such a, he's such an anomaly because it's like, oh, this guy has somehow infused this weird history of like championship whistling and all these different kind of tones and different ways to express musical sound. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's so beautifully balanced and produced. Like that's a whole skill set. Totally. I think Tony's really good at like finding people who don't sound like anyone else or have these weird uh, kind of like, talents or weird like different really unique sounds and putting them together I remember like the the one of the things he said that made me think I really wanted to work with him was he was like we're gonna surround your music with all players who are extremely unique and have their own voices on the instrument which I liked (laughs) that's fantastic it sounds like he's really adept as a producer at drawing out the artist Mm -hmm. and and playing to those to those strengths yeah yeah I really loved that about working with him I, can I ask you a couple of guitar questions? Totally. So piano, I understand better than guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it just, it's very linear to me. You, you know, both hands pretty much, they do very similar things. It's all laid out on the keys. Guitar, I have a very difficult time. Um, and this is for anyone else who's learning guitar too. I have a very difficult time envisioning the fretboard mm-hmm. without really having to stop and think about it mm-hmm. with piano. I know what to sit down and practice because I have exercises. I have classical music. So I know exactly I'll sit down and I'll practice this. I find that I practice piano more, but for people who are struggling to learn guitar, I'll pick up a, my guitar and I go, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to be playing right now. I guess I'll just do some scales. You know, I have no idea. Like, and I have a great, you know, like I have a guy that I work with like once a month on mm-hmm. FaceTime and he's great. Shout out to Matt. But mm-hmm. it, uh, but I don't know what to do with a guitar most of the time. <laughs> I, yeah. Do I have a fundamental, um, am I fundamentally flawed in the way I'm seeing it? No. Like, okay. <laughs> Everyone is confused by guitar. I remember like at Berkeley, even like the teachers would be like, yeah, guitar makes no sense. It's all like tuned in fourths, but then like B string is a third. And, yeah. And then it's like the shapes so because of that, like the shapes that you have, like the triad shapes or the chords change up the string sets. I would like the thing that really helped me was visualizing was um, learning triad shapes up the neck. Cause then you can visualize the chords on each. So like learning a G chord on the, top three strings all the way up and down the neck in different inversions and doing that on the strings getting lower and lower. And then you can, you can like 
then learn the notes like, oh, here's the genome on this string. Here's the genome on this string going through all the mm-hmm. strings and doing that. One thing I used to do is just do that through the circle of fifths, like start with just the notes, um, finding a G note and then make a little three note chord and do that through every key up and down the neck on each string set. Um, doing those drills just like for months helped me a little bit be able to visualize the fretboard. Um, and then it becomes more ingrained in your head, but no matter, I found no matter how far you get with it, the guitar fingerboard is always going to be kind of mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> it really is comforting to hear even you say that because you I really encourage people to search for any of your videos where you're playing online because your, your hands, it, it there's, they move fast, but they're so graceful at the same time. And it's really, it's really beautiful to watch you play. Like your playing is just like, it's beautiful to watch because it's like, oh yeah, that's how a guitar is supposed to be played. It, it's, it seems like from a spectator's point of view that the guitar is really just an extension for you. It's just another limb that you know how to articulate. And for me, it just feels like I just, it's just like a, like a drum that I just like, I just kind of slap my hands on. I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Does it, does it feel that way to you at all when you're playing? Um, sometimes it, it depends. I think like when I'm really stretching myself to play new stuff or like play over songs that I don't, that aren't in like my wheelhouse, then it does feel like I'm just like, Oh, what am I doing? But most of the time when I'm playing like my songs or playing bluegrass songs or songs that I'm comfortable with, it feels pretty good. But then I do fall back on the same stuff a lot, which I wish, I sometimes wish I would just like always coming up with new ideas and like thinking of new licks and just instantly playing them. Um, Yeah, I think that it's hard to get to that point. But I think that's just like, that's just part of the artist journey, I think, where you have to remember that you have to take time to have experiences so that you can then get new ideas to re-express those like you just wouldn't and it's impossible to come up with new ideas every single day it's like well that's not I don't think that's how that works totally (laughs) for someone who wants to learn guitar like who's just like you know what I'm going to be in quarantine for a while I've always wanted to learn guitar what's a good place or resource for people who are listening to start yeah um I mean there's so much good stuff on YouTube I have a I have instructional videos on YouTube and like um and on different guitar magazines, like I think Acoustic Guitar has done some, Premier Guitar I've done stuff for. So you can check out my videos. You can check out other people's videos. A lot of people are doing now online lessons. My dad's teaching a bunch of Zoom lessons. I'm teaching some online lessons. Um, there's different websites like Artistworks or Peghead Nation where you pay a monthly subscription and then you get access to a bunch of lessons that teachers have done um, on there. And yeah, there's so many online resources that it's kind of a good time to dive into it. This has been such a wonderful chat. I, you know, again, I I was a fan of your work before and I, I'm a stronger fan of you now. And I'm so excited to see every direction that you're going to explore. I just think you're so, you're inspirational as a, as a human being and as an artist for people who are trying to find embrace who they are, understand what it is that they care about and really not be afraid to, like you said earlier, just be comfortable in your own skin. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the, I think that's the most powerful place you can be as an artist is figuring out what that is. So I really, really, really am excited to see all the things that you do do from here. 
oh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, the pre-war guitars. Yeah, I love them. Is that is that the one? Is that one that you play a lot? Yeah, that's my main one right now. I alternate. I also have some Preston Thompson guitars that I like to play, but the pre-war I played on the whole album, and I've been mostly playing it live. It's kind of like I get used to a guitar, and then I want to play it live all the time, and then I like kind of then drift off to another guitar. <laughs> but my main is the pre-wars right now. The pre-wars are really interesting because I, I watched you play one on their website. Mm-hmm. And first of all, they're stunning guitars. They they all are modeled after old guitars. Um, yeah. But they sound fresh at the, at, yeah. at, the, at the same time. They're really cool. They have a cool balance of sounding like older guitars, but then sounding like new guitars too. <laughs> are they, are they smaller in size, sort of like the old thirties kind of parlor size guitars or are they more standard size? They're standard size. Um, well, the two I have are dreadnoughts. They make different sizes and the, they make some that are modeled after old Gibsons. Um, they're super cool. Yeah. I love them. They're really like the only new guitars that I've found that sound kind of like older guitars. Got it. Got it. All right. I might have to, I mean, I, I love vintage guitars. I have a bunch of old guitars, but, but it would be nice to have one that was, that I wasn't really afraid to play because I didn't want to mess it up. Exactly. That's why I started playing new. I had a vintage guitar at one point and then sold it because it was too stressful. to toy. <laughs> I didn't have any, Even though I love old guitars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Molly. Um, yeah, and uh, take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye.
handy-tenty scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.